Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Koshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. We're sitting down with 25 masters of the design industry. For the last few weeks, you guys have been reaching out to us, telling us all sorts of things about what you're learning. You've been asking us questions. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. We're going to continue to learn. We're going to sit down and we're going to talk to folks about how the best companies in the world approach, communicate, and deploy design every single day. In this episode, we're speaking with Kate Aronowitz. Most recently, Kate was the VP of Design at Wealthfront. She'll focus on her early years at Facebook helping build that team, setting the right expectations for design leaders, and the evolving responsibilities of designers. We're going to get to this episode after this quick message from our partner. Stick around. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Whether you need a domain, a website, or an online store, make your next move with Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com and enter the code HIGHRESOLUTION, one word, for 10% off your first purchase. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so what's one thing about design that's clear to you that's not clear to others? Um, so I guess my point of clarity is probably a point of unclarity, actually. Uh, it's somewhat clear to me that we're at some pivot point or transformation time in our industry. We've come so far. So I graduated from college 20 years ago, about 15 years ago, came out here, got into tech, and we've come so far. You know, at first it was just trying to get a design team, then maybe trying to get them out of product or get them invited to meetings, you know, the whole seat at the table kind of thing. Um, and now, I mean, all great companies really love and value design. Consumers spend more to get better design. Um, we've got great leaders. More kids are going to school for design more than ever. Um, but at the same time, I don't know if it's that the role has gotten so large or so muddled, but there are lots of us having <laughs> lots of lunches and dinners and coffees, and you guys are putting out this podcast. It's kind of like, what's next? Um, we've had these giant in-house teams. Agencies have kind of transformed. You know, I've had lunches with designers who are ready to be investors, ready to start agencies again, um, restart professional organizations. Um, and so I guess my point of clarity is that there's definitely something going on right now um, with the industry, whether it's redefining our roles or figuring out that we're not training people the right way to get them into mm. the industry. Um, but it, it's kind of exciting to see people kind of branch out and, and try to figure out how to push us forward yet again and, and see what's next. You know, I, I wonder if it's because there are probably enough companies now where we look to them as design leaders. I don't think we had that a decade ago. Yeah. Right? We had a couple of examples, no. and now the more accessible companies like Facebook, like LinkedIn, mm -hmm. um, like Airbnb, mm -hmm. like we're looking at them now as, as, as design leaders, and I wonder if the conversation is finally enough above the radar mm -hmm. um, where it's coming to a head. Yeah. Right? And that's why the industry as a whole is taking notice of the results in these other companies yeah. um, and, and have decided to invest in it. So it's, it's interesting on that point, now that design is finally coming to a head as a function mm -hmm. in the industry. Well, the obvious thing is these companies are looking for leaders, mm -hmm. right? Because they need someone to shepherd design uh, into their companies. Yeah. Um, I just, I look around, I guess, yeah. in my experience over the last few years of being a design leader, and it's, I found it pretty hard to find people with the experience to come into these companies and actually make change happen. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you've had the same experience and, and why do you think that is? Sure. Um, yeah, at least once a week, a couple times a month, um, I get emails in my inbox, you know, we're looking for a new head of design. Um, and it's amazing how many more are coming in. And not only are these small companies, so it's great to see that they're valuing design, but some of these are really amazing companies that can't fill these positions, where I'm kind of shocked. So I started to do something interesting. The past couple of months, I started to respond to the emails. And even though I wasn't interested in taking the role, I thought, yeah. I want to get on the phone and find out what's going on. Like, is it a supply problem? There are enough people. Is it the demand is wrong? Maybe they're they think they're a design culture, but actually when people are going in and inter to interview, they're finding that, you know, I'm steering clear of that place. Um, so I think, I think it's actually twofold. In fact, uh, recently I actually rewrote a bit of a job description and sent it back to a recruiter because okay. I was yeah. pretty frustrated. Yeah. It was for an app that I use 
at least a few times a week, I won't say which one, uh, sounded like a great opportunity. But when they wrote out the role, they wanted someone who could define their product and their services, define all of their design standards, hire a great team, be the voice of quality at the company, roll their hands up and get things dirty. They wanted them to have 15 years of experience. I just read this like <laughs> yeah. 10 minutes ago. 15 years of experience, yeah. be a luminary. Like literally right. I said, you yeah. must be a luminary yeah. to take this yeah. position. Yeah. And uh, I wrote back and I said, you know, your company's great. It's not that big. It's a director level role. You're never going to find anybody to fill this. And I frankly know very few people that fit this description. Yeah. And he kind of snarked back at me and he said, no, too many leaders get like altitude sickness when we ask them to get down in the details. Mm -hmm. And so I need someone that can do it all. And I was like, good luck. I said, if you want to meet, I'd be more than happy to help you with the job description. But it's again, going back to have we saddled design leaders with too much? The people mm -hmm. that just aren't even capable of having these roles, yeah. you know? Um, and then getting back to the supply part, um, you know, I, my network is only so big and, and a lot of the great leaders I know, you know, they're, they're well taken care of. Like, if you've got somebody great, you're gonna take care of them and they've got a good peer system. Um, and a lot of them aren't ready to jump out and go run their own teams. They're happy being part of larger teams. Yeah. And so there's that. And I also think that, frankly, there isn't the training or the mentorship for enough design leadership roles. Design leadership is very, very different than designing. Mm -hmm. And there isn't anybody out there that's really training design leadership as something. So on that note, how did you rewrite that job description? Um, it was more so, you know, I looked at the requirements and I just said, you're not gonna get somebody like this, you know? Like maybe 10 years of design. Um, I said, take off the luminary part. I said, that doesn't actually do anything for you. Um, and, uh, and then I, I kind of separated the job description into two things, more tactical focus and then more kind of team and strategy okay. focused yeah. and said I would pick one or the other. Hmm. So. Have you found that these businesses, when they look for these design leaders, mm -hmm that their, their inclination is to think, so you said that this person wanted the design leader to have it all and do it all, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, do you think that the perspective of design leaders in, in businesses today is that the design leaders are too far detached from the work? Um, and is that problematic? Or do you think that it has to be that way? I think first of all, in my mind, it's important to establish, and, I, and I've always tried to maintain this, that design leadership, there are two paths in design. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve the path for someone who does want to manage, and then we have to preserve the path for someone who wants to keep designing. I think there are a lot of companies that, in order to get ahead, you've, you know, you've got to put down the work yeah. and start managing mm -hmm. people. It's a real shame. Like, and everywhere I've worked, I've always had a career ladder where you can get paid exactly the same to keep designing as you would to keep managing up at the director and, and maybe even oh, VP wow. level. Because I think it's important to preserve that level of, of being a practitioner. Those are the people that are gonna have the breakthroughs and be the luminaries for the other designers. And frankly, to, to kind of remove yourself from the work um, it's like great designers design, great leaders kind of enable that design. Yeah. And um, you create these environments for the yeah. designers yeah. to become great. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a big move. It's a scary move. And, and frankly, I wouldn't want people going to management that wouldn't want to value that kind of thing, that don't value the team, value the enable, value that the people, value mentorship, value being closer to the business and further from the work. Um, that was always where I gravitated towards. So it was a natural career move for me, but I've seen a lot of other people that were pretty pressured into going into management sure. yeah. who were pretty unhappy. And by the way, so were their teams that they were managing. Yep. It seems like it's becoming a pattern amongst like mid to especially large companies where they don't develop that track. Yeah. Um, and then you feel like the logical next step is to become a manager. Yeah. And there's some people who are just like okay with it, so they do it. Well, it's because you know? the, the, the analogous peers yeah. are people on the business side yeah. that you have to become a manager, yeah. right? Yeah, um, I was gonna say, I mean, we do, we've done this in other places too. I mean, it's interesting yeah. when I interviewed with fa at Facebook with, with Mark. Yeah. Um, he had such great perspective on building a great organization. It was this point in time at Facebook where 
And he said to me, he's like, you know, I put all the best people in charge and it turns out they're not always the best people to run the teams. He's like, so I want somebody that's passionate about this part of design. I think the people he had interviewed before me, um, he said, frankly, they wanted to be creative directors. They wanted complete control. They wanted power. They weren't about enabling the people and building a great world-class organization. So it also just depends on kind of like values and where you are in your career. Well, so, so, so talk to us now. There are thousands of people and businesses today that haven't established design as a core mm-hmm. function. I would maybe look at these businesses as design immature mm-hmm. businesses. Um, maybe not design less, but certainly design immature. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so if we're talking to these business leaders that make these decisions on who to hire next, mm-hmm. right, and they've decided that they want to invest in design, mm-hmm. what does that first hire look like? That's a good question. I think there's probably two parts. Um, I think the first hire, wow, it's so critical <laughs> and probably really hard to make. To be, I've never been the first designer at a company and I've never had to hire the first designer. But to me, that sounds like the scariest role to take in design, right? So I think the first designer, it's a really unique hire. They've got to be hands-on. You're not hiring an executive as your first designer, right? Um, they've got to be hands-on. They've got to be passionate about the product. And I think they also have to reflect, reflect kind of the values of the company and the people that they're joining. This is a small company, presumably, um, and really getting into their process, their values, and, and seeing how they're gonna deliver. Now, I said it was kind of a two-part question. The other piece, before you hire somebody, I think trying to define what role design plays in your culture, it should be unique to your company. It, you can't just pick up someone else's design culture and say, oh, this is mine. Would you say the same for organizing the team as well? Like that yeah, has to be, okay. I, I, I really do think so. I think you know the first question to kind of ask when you're trying to define your design culture is like, what role does design play in your product? Is it a true differentiator? Mm -hmm. Is it not really at this point? Is it just about getting somebody through? Is it more on the brand side? Like the functionality is all there, but wow, we need some amazing marketing and brand uh, things. Are you gonna be going to the designer for ideas, Mm. product ideas? Or do you have a really strong product team in place and and you don't need that? Um, Where is design gonna report into? You know, like all of these kinds of questions. How often are you going to meet with the designer? Like, does the designer have to be with the leadership team a lot, or can they be more mentored and junior? Like, what's the support system that you're going to give this person on the way in? All of these things can kind of piece together what your design culture is maybe going to look like, and that's what you should be hiring into. That's very interesting because, you know, you, you notice a lot of startups, especially in San Francisco now, posting their first designer position, and it's always design director or like head of design, mm-hmm. right? And you notice a lot of these designers in like smaller, middle, mid-stage companies where they feel like they're not being empowered or their voice isn't being heard, they're gravitating to these roles. Mm-hmm. And they're going in, but then there's like this um, miscommunication of like expectations, where they feel yeah, that they're I'm the head first, of design exactly. and I'm doing like, everything and yeah. I'm, Right, not exactly. Able to be it's like my strategic. first job is yeah. to hire like three to four designers instead of like to ship the V1 of the product, yeah. right? Um, so that's interesting that your perspective is instead of following like this playbook that works for everyone, right? Yeah. It's finding out what's unique to your culture yeah. and helping that influence that hire. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, I, and I somewhat mentioned it, but I think one thing people don't talk enough about when they're hiring designers or when they get overly critical of the first design hire or designers that are already hired is they don't look closely enough at what their product team looks like. Hmm. You know, show me a poorly functioning design team and I'll show you a probably non-existent like product management function. Dive into that, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so. And I, and I have firsthand experience, like I can picture people in my mind that um, were, have been put on projects um, where, again, putting a lot of pressure on design, we love it, but sometimes there's too much, that kind of like, we have an idea, yeah design it and like we'll know it when we see it. It's like, no, 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 <laughs> we're not going there, right? Like, if you don't have good product requirements, and some great designers can do this on their own, but it's, it's asking a lot of them, um, expecting great design to happen is, is kind of like asking a miracle to happen. It can happen. Yeah. But you know, the product manager's job is to like to understand the market, understand who you're going for, understand the roadmap, how fast or slow are you gonna ship? What does an MVP look like? What business results does this have to deliver? Like, and how can they also clear the way for great design 
to kind of happen. Um, I'm a firm believer that a great designer needs a great partner in both product and also one in engineering. Mm -hmm. um, and when those two things are absent, sometimes you know, you're know you looking at a designer, what's wrong here? Certainly you should evaluate their skills, but look at the other people um, that they're working with and see if they're putting too much pressure on design. How would you delineate the, so I have some actually pretty strong opinions about this, and I would love your, mm -hmm. your side of this. How would you delineate between like, the tripod of, of engineering design and product? What is the role of each mm -hmm. when shipping a product or when coming up with ideas? Mm -hmm. um, and then do you have any advice for how they can work better together? Sure. Um, look, I think in any great team, the, the roles kind of yeah. They cross over at some point, uh -huh. right? If you've ever seen a group that's a team that's in flow and like really in the groove, the product manager, the engineer, everybody's kind of coming up with the best way to do something and they're, they're truly working as a cross-functional team. But I think at the outset, outset, they also have to have their areas that they're experts in. Um, and I think, again, the product manager identifying the market, uh, figuring out the marketing opportunity, the, the business idea, the competition, um, you know, uh, how are we going to go to market? Are we going to charge for this thing? Are we not going to charge for this thing? Making sure that we've got resources for it. Um, and the engineer is, is in charge of really making sure that like technology is brought to bear on the problem. Like the best engineers I've worked with have come and said, you know, you had this design idea. I went home last night. I figured out how to make it better oh, instead cool. of saying, no, 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 I can't do that. Huh. Like helping you enhance. Like, and, and by building a prototype or, or how does that work? Yeah, by yeah. building a prototype yeah. or uh, the mobile team actually at Wealthfront is like phenomenal yeah. at this. They're so passionate and excited about quality interfaces and, and, and product that a lot of times they'll just push things further yeah. rather than saying no. But uh, a great design or, you know, a front end engineer could all, should also say no on occasion. Um, at Facebook and other places we used those kinds of teams would be a checks and balances with the, with the design team. So um, I'm a stickler for standards. Yeah. I think when you have design guidelines and standards and components, you use them. It should be very rare that you break the rules. Um, and so when they're programmed in to the front end, the, the engineer can come by and say, uh -uh, I'm not doing this. Like, yeah. <laughs> tell me why I should spend an extra day to create this new shade of blue for you or this new component or round all the corners instead of yeah. squaring them off. Like, mm -hmm. those are the kind of relationships um, that I think are, are powerful and, and kind of also just keep each other in check. So the checks and balances approach is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen I've seen different different systems before. I've seen the traditional where product management is almost like the designer's manager, mm -hmm. where they go away, they come back with all this stuff, and they're like, mm -hmm. "Hey, like, don't ask me why. This is why. This yeah. is what we have to build. And this, yeah. not even this is why we have to build. It's just this yeah, is what we have to build, right?" Yeah. And then the designer goes off and makes magic happen, mm -hmm. disappears, mm -hmm. and then comes back and then just drops like a PSD or like a sketch yeah. file in engineering and yeah. say, "Build this," right? Yeah. Then you have the slightly alternative approach where product management is still like the manager. Mm -hmm. um, they kind of loop engineering in to just make sure like, is this gonna like work out in the timeline that like we're being pressured mm -hmm. to hit? And then they drop specs and guidelines on design and say, "Design this," yeah. right? Um, I'm biased, so I feel that the checks and balances approach makes sense. Um, kind of like reminds me of like, you know, like yeah. the way the US government's run. Yes. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, imagining that, assuming that the majority of cultures are not this, mm -hmm. how does a team actually get from that to, to this checks and balances approach, right? Because if I'm a designer and I just heard this, I wanna like go show this clip and say like, hey guys, this is why we should do it, right? Yeah. Um, but just saying this is why we should do it, it sounds biased. It's like. I, I'm not doing it to get power, I'm doing it because it's a better process, right? But how does someone actually tra make that transition? Yeah, so first of all, I think, you know, I've seen this mistake happen. I think at a kickoff meeting or whatever you call the beginning of a project at your, at your, at your company, the engineer, the designer, and the PM all have to be present. Now the engineer may not get a call for a couple of weeks, but they all have to be present. Mm -hmm. And there should be some agreed upon process on how you're all gonna work together. Um, and I don't like prescribing that because I think some teams, the PM is really strong. Other teams, the designer is really strong. Um, other times, like what you're building is so far out there that the engineer has to be involved all the time. So I, I think that teams should really figure out what's going to yield the, yield the best result. Um, getting back to the checks and balances, I'm not sure if you're specifically talking about like guidelines and using those with, uh, with designers and engineers. I mean. 
you know, I think using standard components benefits everybody, mm-hmm. benefits the end user because they recognize certain patterns and usage things and they can learn how to use your product much faster. It should benefit everybody in-house because it should enable faster work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always say like, innovate where it counts, don't innovate where you already have patterns and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one way I think checks and balances are, can be really important. Okay. So assuming that, you know, an early stage company has decided that, hey, design, we could try this thing out. Um, they define their culture to some extent. They're like, okay, we, we have a product manager or we have a really strong um, product or marketing presence mm-hmm. in this company. And this is the kind of designer we're looking for. They make that hire, um, assuming they have a product manager on the team and things are going well, right? Mm-hmm. Another designer is brought on, another designer, another engineer, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And they're at this point where it's like, okay, it seems like we're actually building a team now. Yeah. Um, what does progress look like over the course of, say, three months, six months, a year? Like, how do they know that they're moving in the right direction? And what are some challenges that they could expect to come up as they grow? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think progress first and foremost is probably in the end product. Okay. If things are shipping at a regular clip, you know, um, I'm a firm believer that everything that we do, like at the end of the day, we're all employed by companies, and if we're not doing things in the name of like good business or good user experience, like then we're all just kind of you know, designing for ourselves. So if things are shipping pretty quickly um, or at an expected pace, I think that that's good. If all of a sudden things start to really slow down and decisions are really hard to make, that usually says to me that like something is amiss. Um, And I also think that anytime, probably when you have like three designers, it's probably time to get a manager in. you know, designers after a year or so, you can hire them in, get them excited, but like anybody, they're eventually gonna say, what's my career path? Mm. How am I gonna get projects that are gonna stretch me in the right way? Um, I've got way too much on my plate. I don't know how and when to push back. Um, Feels like we're about to define our own process. I'm not sure how that should happen. So it's kind of process things, the career path things, decision making. I think are all usually signs that it's time to kind of put a real group together. Um, and also if other things that the company are taking off wildly, you know, if you're hiring 10 engineers and you're only gonna hire one designer, like I'd ask you like, why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, to truly scale a team, it takes a lot of effort. Even just, <clears throat> I've managed really big teams and the most recent team I, I managed was only five or six, but you know, each one of those seats had to have a very particular kind of uh, personality, talent, yeah. want, desire, you know, to, to make up that right team. And do you, disp- do you define that on the onset, or do you define it as you hire people and figure out what the delta is between what you're looking for and what they actually bring? Um, a little bit of both, Got I it. would say. Yeah. I would say. Like, I, I definitely, um, when people are being hired in, I, one thing I always ask myself is like, if they showed up on Monday, like what projects would I give them? Yeah. And if I have a big kind of blank stare, like it's probably not a good, yeah. a good hire. You yeah. know. One one of the things that designers say a lot is, we need a seat at the table. I personally yeah. find this really irksome, right? Yeah. Because that's it's it reeks of entitlement, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah you, no, you yeah. don't need a seat at the table. Yeah. You need to drive revenue, and that'll get you the seat at the yeah, table. Yeah, exactly. Right? What are the skills that we're missing? Just as a, as a design community, what are some of the things that we're not paying attention to today that we really need to start thinking about? Yeah. Um, I've always found, get it, to your point, getting a seat at the table, like no great designer who's delivering is ever like left in the corner. They will come to uh, you. They will, you know what I mean? Produce the business will come back results. to you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I think that some of the things we're missing out on um, and I don't see this with everybody, but it is too common a habit. Designers can be very kind of myopically focused on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk around an office and you have everybody kind of talking about like industry news or industry gossip or what's going on in the business. And you don't hear that over in the design corner. Like, uh, you know, I always made it a point, you know, I was a very junior designer for many years myself. <laughs> like, I got to the meetings early. I always read the brief a few times. I was prepared with comments and questions. 
um, stuff that had nothing to do with design. So preparedness. Preparedness, but outside of design. Right. No one is going to care what you're doing unless it translates to results for the rest of them. Um, so, you know, having meetings, and yes, you want to talk about design, but you have to put it through the lens of what the business is trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. For instance, at Wealthfront, really, really important to build trust and understanding ahead of time, right? That was design's role for quite a while. We're asking somebody to give us their money. It's a big deal. So if I could translate design into building trust and understanding, oh, people want to hear about it. Not just, I've got this great illustration strategy and like it's very human. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. so, what, what do yeah. you think is the difference between a design VP and a design director? Yeah. Um, my very generic definition of kind of director VP that I've heard a couple other companies use as well is like a director runs a function um, and it runs it completely. Like you are responsible for design at a company and that means everything from making sure that the team has the right hardware and software, lighting, uh, you know, that the PMs are treating them well, that the capacity for the team is okay, that there's a hiring plan in place. Like, that's a lot to do as a director to run an entire function. And kind of the buck stops with you. But a VP then is kind of the next level up in terms of scope at the company. So not only are they responsible for a function, but not to, to borrow the, the term, you have a seat at the table <laughs> when making really big business and uh, company decisions. So at Wealthfront, I wasn't only responsible for design, but I was in on a lot of big company decisions, which meant I had to understand our balance sheet. I had to understand when we were going to you know, get our next round of investing, had to make a lot of trade-offs, and are we going to spend this money now or spend it later? Um, when I became a VP and I got invited to these meetings, I mean, I was a bit of a fish out of water. Like, I would joke, I'm like, I went to art school. Like, this isn't what I went to school for. And I found two really great mentors that I could just ask any question. I would leave the meeting and say, I had no idea what you guys were talking about. Please explain this to me. And after a while, um, it, it became apparent. But I think if you're seeing companies asking for design leaders or VPs yep. that are really going to be on the executive team. Now, I was on the executive team at Facebook, but there was kind of a smaller, I used yeah. to joke that we were at the kids' table, like there was, a, there was a smaller group like Mark and Cheryl that were driving a lot of the business decisions. I was in on some of those, not all of them. If you're thinking about creating a VP position or you're interviewing for a VP position, you want to know why they want design in the room at that time. It's not just, oh, it's the next run on the ladder. It's like, why do you want Kate in the room? Like, what perspective of I'm bringing from design that's going to bear on really big business decisions? Um, I think that's really, really important. It helped me gain confidence when I was in the room. Okay, this is what they're looking for from me. They're not looking for the same perspective as everyone else. Um, I have a point on that. Yeah. This is, this is yeah, kind of no. amazing. Yeah. Um, this is kind of an amazing area to explore. So I find it really interesting that... Uh, you did, in fact, quote, have a seat at the table mm-hmm. at a lot of these executive decisions. Yeah. What was the perspective that you were asked to bring, or what did you actually bring to the table yeah. that was different? Yeah. Uh, I think, first and foremost, I thought kind of through the client's eyes um, and kind of the experience that they were going to have, the parts of the experience that were going to be easy, more difficult, maybe where we should spend more time, because I'm spending more time with clients and understanding, you know, uh, what's working, what's not working. I think also the lens of the brand. Um, what does it, you know, what ramifications these decisions would have for our brand offering? Were we gonna be appealing more to new clients, older clients? Um, you know, were we building out a space where it didn't feel like we needed something? Things like that. Um, budgeting questions, like thinking a lot about headcount. Um, being a VP or director, uh, as much as a designer would want you to, you can't always just defend your own team. You have to think about the company at large, which means sometimes saying, I don't need the next designer because I think we need it more in customer support. Or I'd rather have a marketing team than get a research team on my team. You know, So um, you know, a lot about leadership is knowing when and how far to stick up for the design team and what you think is right. And then sometimes, unfortunately, 
like disappointing your team by kind of coming back and saying, no, this is what we have to do because it's the right thing overall for the business um, and making those unpopular kind of calls. Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting this show. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to get a domain, create a website, or build an online store. They offer domains with SSL certificates and Whois privacy that you can seamlessly connect to your Squarespace website or online store. They take care of everything for you. Nowadays, your domain is your online identity. It's the first thing people see when they visit your site. It helps build credibility, and honestly, it just makes you look more professional. So why mess it up? Squarespace offers an easy way to find a domain that works for you or your business. They even host it for you, all in one place. So if you've been thinking about getting a domain for your new project or personal site, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code HIGHRESOLUTION, that's one word, to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform powering the future of digital design through their deep understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world like Facebook, Capital One, Airbnb, and Netflix. Let me tell you three reasons why I'd use it. One, poor communication is one of the biggest blockers for talented teams. Two, when you don't get feedback from others early and often, you can get lost in the woods, and that's just bad for everyone. And three, without a prototype, it can be hard to show others your full vision for a design. Envision solves all of that. You can rapidly prototype at the front end of the design process and collaborate across every stage of the project. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com and use our access code INV-HIGHRESOLUTION for three months free. So Kate, you started off as a principal designer, um, became a design manager, design director, all the way to a vice president. Um, how did you, that, I mean, that's a pretty good career path. That's, that's hockey, hockey stick. stick. Yeah. Hockey stick is, yeah. yeah, people like to call it. But how did you navigate that path? Yeah, I think it's important to realize that before I was ever a principal designer, I did, I think, eight years of design. Um, my first job out of school was at an in-house team uh, for a natural supplements company. I used to like literally retouch muscles on like muscle wow. people. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, these I, like, ads. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I kind of did everything. I was yeah. so excited to have a job. I can remember them doing these big branding projects and I wasn't asked to participate and I just did my own comps and like put them in with the other ones and said, hey guys, I showed up with some stuff. Um, we did a lot of print design and I would volunteer to go sleep literally at the press checks like on a couch like this. Like, um, I truly viewed it as an apprenticeship. I don't know anybody that told me to do it that way, but I really worked hard underneath really good people. After that, I went to a, an agency. Um, I feel like being both in-house somewhere and also benefiting from being in an agency is such a great experience. Mm. So at the agency, like understanding how to sell work, working with a great account manager, um, I traveled when no one else wanted to travel. I remember one time flying to Germany for 48 hours to like deliver a design presentation. I wow. was 22 and I was like, okay, I'll go to Munich yeah. overnight. <laughs> and like, Was that the first time you had presented something? Uh, no, I had been there before. Got it. But okay. they said, you know, like these are all people that had families. They're like, I'm not going to Germany. I was like, I'll go. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I actually, my, my best it, friend go. to this day is still the girl that sat next to me, like at that agency. And the two of us were like, well, we'll go, you know. So, yeah. um, and learning so much under great people was really important to me. I mean, I worked under two phenomenal creative directors who, in critique, would like slaughter your work. But you know what? You learn a lot around detail. I can remember them, you know, looking at some of my logos, and they'd stand back and they'd say, "It's obviously you didn't look at this from ten feet because it looks like a mess from out here." I'm like, "Okay, I will never make that mistake again." Or you didn't use the right typeface. Like if you look at all of this, this is correct. You didn't do it right. Okay. Like so, there was a lot of um, learning that I did on the job, and then at eBay, uh, you know, I started at eBay. I had no web experience. I did PowerPoint presentations for them. And again, went over to the, the newly formed user experience team there. 
and did marketing graphics for them and slowly just kind of eased my way into kind of finally working on like their search product, their feedback product, buying, selling, all of that um, in the early 2000s, which was a really interesting time. They had a great PM team and I learned a tremendous amount. So before I was ever a manager, before I was ever a principal, uh, there was a lot of being the second designer on a lot of things and a lot of late nights and weekends kind of working on things. Um, and then from there, I think the first inkling I, that I wanted to be a manager was that, um, you know, inevitably designers will eventually clash with business people or disagree on something or disagree. What a tragedy. Yeah, yes, yeah. always happens. I was always the one that was like wanted to stay after and figure out why. Right. Like go out to the lunch with the with the person from the business unit and figure out like, well, why are they so frustrated with us, you know? And so I kept doing that over and over again and to the point where I said, you know, I care more about this and I get more excited about this than actually designing. Um, and you have those moments where you're like, if I was doing that, I could do it better. And so I just asked for permission to do it. Um, and the first team I managed was only two people. I can still remember them. It was two women. I remember walking in my first day as their boss and just taking it so seriously. Like, all of a sudden, you're responsible for their careers. You're responsible to make sure that, like, they're doing great work. They have the tools that they can, you know, use and that they're going to get to go somewhere. So it's, it's, a, it's a big breaking point that I don't think people really take heart to, going from a designer to, like, managing designers. Um, and then, you know, eventually becoming a director and, and then VP. So I, I might argue that you, you probably had the most massive impact of your career at Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, I really want to go back into that first conversation you had with Zuck. Mm -hmm. um, there was obviously a moment in time where Facebook decided to invest in design heavily. Mm -hmm. And you were there. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that conversation. What were you guys talking about? What did he see that most other people in the industry just weren't seeing? Sure. I should add that the reason I got the call to Facebook was from one of the business people at eBay that had remembered that I was always somebody that That's like amazing. built good relationships. So it's a very good lesson. That's a lesson. There we go. There <laughs> we go. Yeah. Don't burn any bridges. <laughs> right. Like let us. And she runs people at at Facebook. Lori Goler. Like she's been an amazing mentor and supporter of like cool. my entire career. Um, so the very first conversation, so I was at LinkedIn. I'd only been there for nine months, and I was happily there. I like staying at a place for a long time. I like those relationships. I like knowing the business. Um, and I kept referring people in to Facebook, and they're like, no, no, no. They all want to be creative directors. We want somebody. Mark wants somebody that wants to come and build, like, the best design team in the world. And I was like, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. So afternoon, it took months, afternoon by afternoon, I would just go over and kind of speak to one person at a time. And I didn't want to speak to Mark until I knew that I was serious. Yeah, I didn't want to waste his time. And uh, I went over there one evening and we sat and we talked. And the thing that Mark brought to that was the same thing. It's the same values he brings to everything. You know, you see his posts now. He's an avid learner. I mean, he has such mm -hmm. an open mind. And when he wants to know something about, you know, a subject, he is not afraid to ask questions. So a lot of it was him just asking me questions and me asking questions back. I remember saying, uh, how user-centered would you say Facebook is? And he's like, what does it mean to be user-centered? Yeah. You know, I was like, like, how great to just like ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was just very open with me that he just, he wanted a team uh, that would help scale. I mean, he was very focused on scale. Mm -hmm. And what that meant for design was scaling the site which meant um, a relentless kind of focus on consistency and components, things that we could replicate really quickly. Yeah. Um, he saw the benefit of that internally, but he also saw it for users. He was like, if they learn how to use Facebook, they understand the news feed, then they can understand how to use photos and understand how, he was very smart and ahead of his time and thinking Were about you guys like thinking about research as well? Were you thinking about user experience? There was already experience? a research team. So, so the got good it. thing, I mean, there was already an established team when I got there. There were about 22 people that yeah. spanned uh, communication or marketing design, yeah. um, product design, uh, research, and then there was a small kind of front end team that was budding. Um, but the very first assignment that Mark gave me when I got there is he said he wanted us to have design principles. And 
The cool thing about that was why he asked. He said, I want you to be able to come in and bring design to the table, and I want us to have a common language on how we can evaluate it, because I yes. don't want to just tell you I like something or yes. I don't like something. I was like, oh my God, that this is, is amazing. By the way, like that is that's massive foresight on his part to understand. Amazing, that's amazing like, right? I mean, like to have cool. somebody yeah. say that to you yeah. Uh, when, yeah. That's when you knew you were at the right place. Yes. So, no, right? absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. did this become like a shared language between you, Zuck, and engineering, uh, like the other departments? Mostly design okay. and, and Mark and, and the other PMs. I mean, yeah. like we had other really great leaders at the company too. It's interesting. I'd, I'd love to talk to other teams and find out, like, design. do design principles actually get used? Yeah. Yeah. I have to say I don't know how often they got used, but the process of writing them and debating them was probably more valuable yeah. than insightful. anything yeah. that actually followed on from there. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but Chamat Paliapatiya mm -hmm. is, like, yeah. well-known. Yeah to have put this growth team together, yeah. and it, it, apparently the first ever growth team, the way it was done at Facebook yeah. anyway. Um, how, the entire point of the growth team obviously was to grow as quickly as possible. I mean, mm -hmm. that, in bare bones language, that's what it mm -hmm. was. How did design, because you, you were there when that team was put together, how did you engineer the design team for him mm -hmm. and the, the effort that he was putting together on the growth team? Yeah. So the team, the growth team had probably been in place, I don't know, for almost a year or something before I got there, um, and they already had a designer working with it. Um, you know, I'm no, we've, we're no stranger to metrics and design. I mean, as far back as we've been doing design within business, there's always like measurable outcomes and optimizing and things like that. But to your point, um, we had massive goals. Every group at Facebook had massive goals. At the time, I think we were trying to get to 100 million users on Facebook monthly. MySpace was still bigger than us, if that puts some context in. Um, and the growth designers, again, what was interesting from my perspective, people didn't want to design for the growth team because they thought that the numbers were just gonna dictate what they had to do. Mm. But what Chamath encouraged the team to do, and this was the first time I, I thought about things this way was to really swing wide with experiments. So as designers, we're frightened to experiment with anything we're not comfortable shipping. Like, well, I would never ship that. I'm not going to give that to them. But on that team, they would test extremes to kind of see what the tolerance of the users or the business was, which I thought was really interesting. So swing wide, launch these wildly different things at the end of the spectrum, and then you will end up finding the limits. Because if you just start in the middle and you go pixel by pixel out, you'll actually never know how far you can push things. Mm. And the designers that worked with his team were probably better versed in the business. They were faster. They could hang in a big group discussion like better than many other designers could. And, um, and there was also like an amazing camaraderie on, on his team too. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they got recognized a lot at the company, sure. which is yeah. kind of fun. So, you know, so many other companies have these growth teams. And again, I still see designers kind of stay away from that function, but man, I think if you're a new designer, what a great place to start and learn the business. Like, Can agree more? Yeah. So. Yeah, great team, learned a lot of lessons. They're still, uh, they're still working hard. A lot of the same people are still there that you know, I admire to this day. And they've got a pretty large design team, by the way. That's great. <laughs> I think that's how uh, Luke Woods came in. Uh, he started to lead the growth team. It was the first time that we had like, a real design leader in growth. So while you're at Facebook, um, you helped scale the design team from yeah. about 20 people to 200. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seems like you guys had a relentless focus on your like designing your design process yeah. or like recruiting process, yeah. right? So what did yeah. that look like? Um, so as I mentioned, everyone at Facebook had really big goals. It's one thing if somebody tells you you have to hire like five designers or five people this okay. year. You think, okay, well, we can like make a few tweaks and we'll probably end up with five. But when he says you have to hire uh, like 25 or 30, which was in my mind insane, it makes you, you know, at Facebook we talk a lot about hacking things. It makes you think, how are we going to hack this yeah. process? Like there's got to be a shortcut. There's got to be something we can do. Uh, so the very first thing we did, we, we pulled recruiting in. And uh, just like you would draw a business funnel, we drew a funnel on the board. Top of funnel, how many people. We, we had numbers for every single stage in the funnel. So. The year before I got there, 12 months, they'd hired one designer. So we knew at the bottom of the funnel there was only one. <laughs> so yeah. how many people had applied or had we sourced? 
how many people went to phone screen. After phone screen, how many people came on site? Or did, I think at the time we saw the design exercise. How many did the exercise? Yeah. How many people got through to offer? And then how many people accepted? And we started, we literally, I mean, it took us years to get through all of this, but we, we dissected every piece of the funnel. Like phone screens, okay, what's the script? Is that everybody getting the same standard questions? Why is one person saying yes and everyone else is saying no? Mm. Um, on-site interviews were wildly like varying. Mm. You know, Sometimes people got a tour at the beginning. Sometimes people didn't get a lunch. Sometimes okay. Mark would pop in and say hello. I mean, the company was still small at the time. And you have to remember, uh, we were smaller than MySpace. I got turned down a lot. We had a lot of offers that were rejected. I used Mark a lot. I used Cheryl a lot. I used a lot of people to, wow. to help get yeah. people through. But we did. We designed the entire candidate experience top to bottom. How many designers were at the top of funnel and then at the end of that, what was the percentage in the difference? Oh gosh, I wish I could remember this kind of stuff. I'd imagine it was pretty significant yeah. if you had a drop off and, and, yeah. and yeah. Uh, if you guys were optimizing yeah. the funnel as well. But we got to the point where we had um, twice weekly recruiting meetings. Uh, okay. We made it everyone's job, every design manager and pretty much every designer was in charge of sourcing. We would have these big sourcathons, yeah. um, and that's where we kind of came up with this idea of this dream list. So, okay, we have to hire 20 or 30 designers. Let's make it even cooler if we actually start putting like the best designers in the world on this list. And on that note of best yeah. designers in the world, I don't know if people know this, but you either managed or mentored Luke Woods yeah. and Julie Zhu, both of whom are VPs or heads of design mm -hmm. currently at Facebook. Uh -huh. Tell us about that. What, like, what did you see in them? How did you help grow them or manage yeah. them? Well, Julie was a manager when I, when I interviewed. I can still remember I was supposed to interview with her for about 40 minutes, and I think we spent more than two hours in a conference room. I, she had this oh. big Stanford sweatshirt on, and she had started, I think, as a CS intern at Facebook. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, she's always had leadership qualities. I think the thing that I saw in Julie, she was never phased by anything that happened at work. I mean, we had major goals. There was a lot to get done, and she just had this heads-down pursuit of always doing the right thing. And she also had really good ideas on other people. Um, I think she was one of the people that originally kind of designed this UIE team, this user, user interface engineering yeah. team, right? Yeah. Which wasn't really a front-end team, and they weren't designers. Um, she mentored and, and hired in just an amazing group of people. I mean, it, it's great to see her then now kind of share lessons learned. It wasn't always easy. <laughs> we had a lot of, uh, you know, struggles and conflict. You know, we'd have long discussions about what the role of a product designer was versus a communication designer, um, how design should be enabled at the company. Um, yeah, so, and she's also just a really great designer in her own right. And then Luke also amazing, but a very different kind of personality. We put him on the list. He was at the IDEO Chicago um, office, and at the time, we were looking for people that were really strong on process. And Luke, as you'll see, is one of those people, at least he was with me. I had weekly one-on-ones with him, and uh, very little words, but like just the best listener and so perceptive, like could just say a few words. He was very comfortable with silence and very comfortable with questions, which was great because Facebook, there was usually just a lot of people trying to talk and get their, their, yeah. to get their words in. So I, I learned a tremendous amount actually from, from both of them and, and feel lucky to have worked with, with them. So the, in this interviewing process, uh, what were you looking for in particular? Like what, what did you define as a, design, a Facebook designer at that time? That's a good question. Uh, it was a pretty hefty load. So we were looking for people, I think it was four or five things. So you had to be a great visual designer because we didn't have a split. So you had to be able to ship, you had to have really good taste. Like we looked for details. Were details overlooked in their portfolio? Did they really care about shipping polish? Great interaction design skills, so understanding you know, flows and in and out and how things were gonna connect. Um, and then the other two things that we had on the plate were, were somewhat new and somewhat controversial. The next one was, they called it product sense, right? It's kind of that elusive product sense, right? <laughs> can, you, can you articulate 
kind of a product or user need and, and talk about and, and conceive of what the solution would be. So not just take specs and build them, but really be at the table and understand the dynamics. And at Facebook, a lot of it, we talked about what were the benefits to the individual and then what were going to be the benefits to the network from any product that we launched. And then the last thing that we kind of got rid of when I started was everyone had to code and push all their live, their stuff live. Wow. Yes. You started that. Or you oh, I got rid of it. it. That was it, yeah. probably the most controversial thing when I first started. I remember interviewing with uh, this guy, Mike Schrepfer, who's a dear friend and, uh-huh. and was one of my bosses there. He's the CTO at Facebook. And I remember walking around Palo Alto with him and I said, you got to know that when I come in, like designers aren't coding anymore. And yeah. I know that's going to be unpopular, but I can't imagine you're hiring people to, to, that can do all this. Now, to their credit, and I still know these, they're amazing designers. There were, there was a group of people there that yeah, could yeah. do it. But we were, we were growing too fast. We, we couldn't wait for It wasn't scalable. Yeah. And then Julie, you know, said, well, if we're going to do this, let's set up the UIE team. And that team became like one of the most badass like engineering teams. They were just fantastic. So you spoke about this funnel, this hiring yeah. funnel that you worked on with the, uh, the recruiting team. Yeah. Uh, now, we didn't talk too much about like where these candidates were being sourced from, yeah. but one thing that became clear yeah. is Facebook took some unconventional methods, and mm-hmm. one of them was looking at agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you helped in shepherding acquisitions like Sofa mm-hmm. and um, Hot Studio and Push Pop Press, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe up until that point, it was pretty unconventional to do that, right? Yeah, and there were even smaller shops before that. Um, there was a husband and wife team, Matt and Tiffany Brown. She later went on to be creative director at, at Pinterest, like mm-hmm. that we sourced kind of anywhere. We had giant names on the list, like Mike Mattis, who was on the original yeah. iPhone, and he, even, he joined us for a couple years. Like mm-hmm. Evan Sharp, who mm-hmm. came and joined us for a year when Pinterest was kind of a little thing and not doing much. Like Nick Felton, who did his annual reports, we got him to join for a year or two. So we looked everywhere for inspiration. Um, I can remember staying up late at night, sourcing on my you know, iPad was relatively new and all the apps, just finding apps I liked and then doing the detective work to figure out who built them. Um, that's where Push Pop Press came from. Uh, the Sofa guys were so attractive because um, they built and launched their own products. So they weren't just an agency that was designing for someone else, they actually had their own products. Mm. And they were just remarkably smart, they were a great team. Um, and uh, it hadn't occurred to me that we could purchase a company, but I remember talking to Mark um, specifically, I think, actually about the Gowalla team, which was like this old app in, in Austin, Texas. <laughs> and I said, but it's like a company, but there's only like three designers, yeah. like Adam Michaela and Keegan Jones and Josh Williams. And yeah. I was like, do you buy a company? And he's like, you do if you know you're going to get even just a few people that are going to come make an impact on the company, which was great. Um, the hot studio acquisition, I would put in its own bucket. I mean, that was just a scale that was crazy. I mean, I, I'm probably going to get the numbers wrong. I feel like there were 60-something people working there at the time, and we took 30-something. Um, and I, I credit this woman who's still there. She's a VP, Margaret Stewart, um, for kind of shepherding that through. Uh, she'd known Maria, who owned and ran hot for years, and Margaret was in charge of basically building out the business side of the design team. She needed like 30 or four designers like now. And none of the regular designers wanted to go over and do that, which is another lesson. Yeah. I don't like say yes to this kind of yeah. stuff. Like you learn so much. And so we kept trying to source different people. And she came in and she said, I think Maria might want to join. Like it's, it, it'd be a great experience for their team. Um, we get a team that's already used to working together. And so we spent months up here um, interviewing the designers and and working things out. And and we had a war room and making sure that everything was going to work out. Um, Those were really, really cool experiences. I I learned a lot about also how to just assimilate a team that comes in that's been acquired, like good and bad things to do. uh, What are like a few of those? Because, um, yeah. So I think... Unfortunately, and we did probably did this a bit with Sofa, like we had kind of the drop and scatter model. It was like, and you get a designer, and you get a designer. <laughs> they just became resources yeah. on a sheet, which I knew at the time was probably not the right thing to do, but that's what we needed. Mm. Um, later teams, like when Nick and, and, and Ryan came in from um, Nick Felton's 
team, like we said, okay, you guys are going to work together. Like uh, the hot studio team, you're going to work together. Um, you know, we allowed teams to kind of drop, assimilate together okay. um, and maintain those relationships and then let them kind of peek out and see what else was going on. And we also then started asking them to teach us things instead of making them indoctrinate into the Facebook way of things. We said, teach us classes. How, do you, how did you guys do things? Like making it feel like we were welcoming their kind of cultural like rituals and processes yeah. in. Like if you guys used to do drinks on Thursday night, we're going to start doing that to like welcome mm. you into the fold. So assimilating the cultures rather yeah. than just like dropping Dictating. and scattering. And was that pretty organic? Just like, hey guys, this is what we used to do? Or was there like yeah. time dedicated yeah. to this? Yeah, I think also just, you know, one of the things that we found out in acquisition, people don't always have a choice whether yeah. they're going to join or not. Yeah. But um, when going through the offer process uh, with designers, we really optimized to really get to know the person and what they valued to make sure that we made the right match on day one with the project that they were going to come and do. I mean, we used to orchestrate offers like you wouldn't believe. Like, do we take them out for coffee? Do we take them to dinner? What are they like? Should we have somebody pop by and say hello afterwards? Who's going to be the first phone call in the morning that they receive? Like, does Kate give the offer? Does the you know like really like yeah. designing that yeah, experience? Yeah, design. Yeah, yeah it, it it was. Kate, so the, we'd like to. We've sourced some questions from our community. Mm -hmm. um, we reached out to to folks, and we've picked a, a few questions mm -hmm. that we want to ask every guest. Um, and I'd like to start with, how do you explain the role of design to people in the business? Um, that's actually a really hard question. Um, if it's someone that already has a business or they're thinking about design, um, I'd try to put it into context of what they're trying to do. Uh, rather than just saying, oh, design is about a brand or it's about the relationship that you have with your customer or it's about, you know, the touch point or bringing ideas to life. Like, all of that sounds great and those are all things we can do. But finding out kind of what's important to this person's business and thinking carefully about the role that design can play. Uh, for instance, there's a, a company I'm talking to right now. Um, they know they need a head of design. And I love that they reached out. They said, we actually don't know what we're looking for. Can you come hang out with the team for a couple weeks and, uh, and figure it out? And so I'm about to start you know, spending a couple weeks with them and actually figuring out the role that design plays yeah. there so we can articulate it and then try to find someone to lead it. So I know it's kind of a fuzzy answer, but. No, that's good. It's like design <laughs> is elastic to, in that yeah, sense. It is. Yeah. It is. Sometimes it's the facilitator. Sometimes it's just the doer and the maker. It, it's, it's, it's hard to say. And it's always, you always describe it in the language the business understands. I think right? so. You don't focus yeah. on the craft so much yeah. as you focus on. Make it so they can actually the, picture it happening in their office. Right. And get excited about it. Right. You know, because it, it can be intimidating. Sometimes people like design, it's like, well, I don't have good taste or it's all about, you know, people in black turtlenecks and there's being very <laughs> difficult to work with. Like, no, if you, you make it something that they can relate to that's gonna drive success, then like, why wouldn't they care? So, so a second question, um, in your most recent role at Wealthfront, mm -hmm. how is the design team organized there? Sure, uh, pretty simply. <laughs> so there were only five designers and a researcher. So that, that, was, that was really how it was. Um, they all reported into me. Um, I decided that when I joined the company with such a small team that like it was fun to go back to being a little loose with things. Like do the things you can do when your team, I used to joke, they can all fit around my, my dining room table. Like they'd yeah. come to my house for offsites. Um, we'd go out to dinner a lot. Um, I was also pretty flexible on what they worked on. Um, when I first joined the, the previous manager or the team, I should say, kind of structured like you're on growth and you're on investment products. And like, why not be flexible, guys? Like we're a small team, let's stretch. Uh, why don't we pair up once in a while? You know, like it was just, it was, um, I really got to know each one of the designers, what their strengths were, what they liked working on, what I thought that they were capable of, and also knowing the other people in the company and just trying to pair them up. Um, that's how the team was, was, uh, was set up. When you're the only designer in a company, mm -hmm. how do you convince the business people, not the non-designers, mm -hmm. of the value of design, the stuff that you bring to the table? So I have a snarky answer to that okay. first. <laughs> if you're the only designer in a company that doesn't value design, 
That's a really bad place to be. I'd be like, I'd be shocked that they, that I, it's almost like, why did you hire me? You know what I mean? Like you went through the trouble to hire me. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to convince them that design matters when you're the only designer. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Try to do as much listening as you can and try to reflect their values and their interests back to them. Huh. Um, and I also think that if you're the only designer at a company, it can be very lonely. Um, join a community, get a friend, get a mentor, participate in, in groups. There are lots of good Google groups and, and uh, Slack groups and, and meetings. Um, make sure you find somebody that, that can give you tips. Um, and uh, the other thing I guess I would say is there's got to be somebody at the company that cares what you're doing. It might not be the person you're trying to get through to, but sometimes finding... Um, a sponsor or something. Sp- exactly. I like. I love the word sponsor because I think a mentor and a sponsor are two really different things. Absolutely. A sponsor is somebody that's going to look out for you, make sure you're taken care of, versus a mentor. You know, and I think sometimes they get conflated. Yeah. And there's sometimes that one, you need one or you need the other. Yeah. yeah. And I and I've tried to be that honestly. Like once I found myself with you know not power but <laughs> a seat at the table, whatever. Like, yeah. Influence, right? There were a lot of people that I tried to look out for. Um, and some of them were in roles that had nothing to do with what I was doing. They could be in finance or HR or uh, you know, or product management. I think it's it's kind of your duty when you become kind of a leader to to make sure you're looking out for other people. So So when you're a designer, a manager, it really doesn't matter. Um, how do you present well, first off, measure and present the design results from, from your work. Mm-hmm. And this could be to fellow designers to like show whether or not this, this idea or this direction made sense, or especially to like leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think putting it into a language that makes a difference to the business. Um, I would assume that whatever project you're on has a goal, yeah. so measure it against that goal somehow. And then you know, layer in your design goals underneath that. Um, you know, at, at Facebook, some of the design goals could have been like, or let's say business goals. I remember site speed was a ma- massive goal for us. Like, um, we would bring up the site on many different browsers, and sometimes it was like painfully slow. So you think about, okay, site speed's a, a goal for the company. How can design make a difference? Sometimes it's not like rel- uh, readily it's apparent. It's kind of the, working yeah. backwards from what they care about. So. Using the same components, okay, you go to the engineer, what would make the code lighter weight? Like, what am I doing that's adding weight to the site? Okay, things like that. Um, and also just being versant in the business and things that, that, that other people are caring about. Like, know the industry that you're in, know what other people are doing, drop that in conversation. Um, and sometimes, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm just trying to get all the designers to des- drop all the design speak. Like, that's not what I'm advocating for. Um, wouldn't hurt. It, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> I, I mean, what's interesting, not to sidetrack too much, but the woman who took my place at Wealthfront, the cool thing about her, she's actually a researcher. She's not a designer, but she's amazing. She's an IDEO background. And I asked her to come in. The first couple of weeks, I said, just go to lots of meetings and tell me what you see. So she'd shadow all the designers, and she'd come in, and she'd say... Well, they all say they love design, and they have the designers at all the meetings, and your designers are really busy. <laughs> but I don't think anybody actually understands what this team does. And I've been running it for, like, 18 months, and I'm like, okay, that's tough to hear, but thank you for the feedback. I'm like, what do you think we need to do? And she's like, you need to kind of take the mystique off the team. We need to get together as a team. We need to define our process. It needs to be fit on a handy-dandy, like, slide that you can show to somebody. And it will help everybody immensely. So you can point to, no, we're actually in the understand phase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to ask questions. Or no, you know what, we're trying to ship next week, and you're asking questions that belong back Right, here. yeah. So, um, again, explaining. And that becomes rash- a learning process it, for it, everyone. It it's reinforcing. So she said, yeah. she said I'm, I'm seeing the designers, and they're getting pulled into every which way. Um, you know. And then other goals, obviously, uh, related to design, you know, measuring brand, brand loyalty, getting into a lab and understanding how easy is, is something to use. Um, you know, the numbers will tell you what someone's doing, but they don't tell you why or how someone's mm-hmm. feeling. Yeah. So really representing that um, is always important. And if you're at a company that doesn't care about that, then that's, that's a red flag, I guess. So we can end with this. Yeah. 
as the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some of the roles and methodologies you think designers need to start thinking about and paying attention to over the next five years and businesses, sure. not just designers? Sure. Um, so for roles, I think the, the role of the designer has gotten very vast. Yeah. And I think some companies are now experimenting with like design producers or design partners, mm -hmm. people that are really good at this kind of facilitation phase. Um, like I love the Sprint book by the Google mm -hmm. Ventures team. Mm -hmm. Like that's a real skill to be able to facilitate something like that. And it might not be the same person that's at the desk actually, you know, pushing the pixels and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So maybe there are more roles as everybody gets really stretched thin. It's very hard to do all of it at once, being comfortable splitting some of those roles out. Um, as far as disciplines go, um, there's such cool stuff going on. I got to go up to Amazon recently um, and heard their voice design team present. I'm like, voice design, what yeah. is that? Yeah. I'm like, that's a wow. thing? I'm like, that is cool. <laughs> yep. Like, yep. And it was amazing. I mean, yeah. they study like speech patterns and recognition wow. and uh, how long can Alexa speak before someone will forget it? And how can you like make it welcoming? Fascinating. Like if I was to go back in time in school, I would like study voice design, semantics and things like that. Um, the other thing that they're showing and we're seeing in a lot of places is kind of intersection of hardware and software. Sure. It used to be like the industrial designers go like yeah, work yeah. on fancy like drills or furniture or tables, yeah. you know, but now it's like hardware and software like coming together is super cool in about cars or, you know, my love my Alexa in, in my house, things like that. Um, and then uh, not to get political, but uh, just thinking about communication and this election and thinking about kind of the role that design plays in sharing of information and expression or identifying good sources and bad sources of information, bringing people together, using design to protest or, or give people a voice, um, or thinking about automation and the role that design plays in that and what that's doing the job force. I mean, there's a lot to think about right now. Mm -hmm. um, that's much bigger than, than anything we've seen in the past 10 years, which is cool, so. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks, thank Kate. you. Hey, you made it to the end, congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that, that we covered with our guests, Go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, we're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've gotta check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.